Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and geopolitics. Uh, what we like to do on these talks is the same thing we like to do at our SALT conferences, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas shaping the future, and every once in a while, we like to chat with what we think is one of the greatest authors of our generation who likes to write about uh, fiction, but uh, in a way that ties into geopolitics and real world events in a way that I think is unique to any author out there today. And this will be his third appearance on Salt Talks. Uh, and if you've been watching this series since we started early uh, in 2020, you'll know that I'm talking about the great Daniel Silva. Uh, he's an award-winning number one New York Times bestselling author. Uh, of The Unlikely Spy, The Mark of the Assassin, The Marching Season, and The New Girl, among many, many other titles. Uh, he's best known for his long-running thriller series starring spy and art restorer Gabrielle Alon. Uh, Silva's books are critically acclaimed bestsellers around the world and have been translated into more than 30 languages. He currently resides in Florida with his wife, who's television journalist Jamie Gangle, who's fantastic as well, and their twins, Lily and Nicholas. Uh, and hosting today's talk is avid uh, Gabrielle Alon fan and even a bigger fan of Daniel Silva, Anthony Scaramucci, who is the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, also the chairman of SALT. As much as he likes investing in finance, he much prefers sitting by his pool out there in the Hamptons where he is today uh, reading Gabrielle Alon's latest adventures. So I'm going to turn it over to Anthony to kick things off. Daniel, well, welcome again to SALT Talks, your third time. But I would have added the John's introduction, predictive fiction, because you are uncanny with that. You've predicted terrorist events. You've predicted uh, different geopolitical situations. The situation with Russia is basically, uh, it's almost like reading an intelligence brief every summer when I get an opportunity to read the book. Um, tell us about your life, though. This is our third SALT talk uh, since the pandemic started. So what's changed in your life in the past year of anything? Are you going out more? Are you doing things differently? Uh, what changed year, in, in the past year? I, um, I did go to a dinner um, the other night. It was interesting. Um, I was lucky enough to have uh, dinner with um, Judge Michael Ludig after he testified for the January 6th committee, which was an interesting dinner, dinner party, to say the least. Um, I'm, I'm re-emerging carefully and slowly, testing, testing, testing. Um, and uh, I am going to do a book tour. I mean, this is this is the the big news of of this book. I mean, I'm I'm going to I'm going to try to do a national book tour. Try because I'm going to. I mean, if if I get COVID, it's it's going to cause a problem because I've got a lot of big events scheduled. So um, so my my reappearance begins soon. <laughs> Double mask on the planes, test often, and then try to get through a, a national book tour without without contracting the the, the virus. Well, usually I will say, and our viewers and listeners know this from us. We're always tell people up front. John's had it several times. I've had it several times. The COVID variant going on right now, my opinion, is as bad as the one that we started with, John. I mean, my wife was out flat and cold for seven days, you know, and so just be careful out there. How long, how long ago? So well, I, I had it. I had it in May, but my wife just contracted it. I guess I had enough antibodies where I didn't get it, but she has been laid out flattened. She's in day seven. And, uh, you know, to me, someone calls it mild. They don't know what they're talking about. Okay. okay. She's, got, 
young woman. So double mask and make sure you keep yourself safe. Uh, but let's talk about somebody that doesn't know how to keep himself safe, but gets himself out of every situation known to mankind. That's our friend Gabriel Alon. So what is he up to in this book? This is a phenomenal book. Once again, Portrait of an Unknown Woman. Uh, it's a spy novel, but it's also a lot about the way humans interact with each other. There's a forgery going on in here. There's a fraudulent hedge fund. I will say that uh, we'll get into careful, that. Careful, careful, spoiler. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to spoil too much. You're right. But, um, but, but go, go into where Gabriel is right now. I don't want to give up too much. Although I will, I have to point out that you put me in the acknowledgments. Last year, I was in the acknowledgments. And, uh, and I was t- related to Russian money laundering. And now this year, I was never so delighted in my life than to see my name in the words head front fraud. That's <laughs> more delighted. So, well, I, it, is a, it is a thriller. It is, it is fiction. So, it, you know, you, no, you, need, you, need, you need tension. You need bad guys. So, yeah, you, you helped me with them. Um, first of all, going back to last year, we'll start there. Okay. That operation that I did with, uh, with against the Russian, um, we'll call him a wallet is a term we use, someone who's holding Putin's money. Yeah. Um, I will tell you that a former CIA director said to me, that was a great op. Right. Um, and, and I hope our guys are doing things like that. Um, without giving too much away, we, you and I um, enticed and tricked a, uh, a, a a Russian billionaire, part of the inner circle of, of Putin to invest many, many billions of dollars in the United States into assets that we were able to seize and freeze and name and shame. It was a great op. It was a great op. Um, I, I enjoyed working on that with you because unfortunately, when you get into the government, you get to really see the seamy side of uh, this activity out there. And so that was a great uh, bait, baiting. And it was great. I mean, listen, I love that book as well. But here's Gabriel now. Tell us what he's doing. Um, he is retired from the Israeli Secret Intelligence Service. Um, and he has settled, as predicted in a book a couple of uh, books ago, the order he is settled in Venice with his wife and children. Um, his wife is now the general manager of the most prominent um, a restoration company in Venice, a firm that, you know, rebuilds churches and and other historic buildings and gabriel is the director of the paintings department of this company that and his wife is his boss basically um so um move the character into into sort of the, the final act for the series um of how their life is going to be um and it is the novel opens he is basically recovering and resting from the all the operations that he's He's uh, undertaken the last few years and he, he, he was almost killed at the end of the cellist. Um, and and um, he gets an old friend asks him to to investigate the circumstances of a uh, rediscovery of a and sale of an of a, of a old master painting. Uh, and it leads Gabriel into a forgery case. And he he works with um, French and Italian police to track down uh, what I call the, the greatest art forger the world has ever known. Um, and the, the book was inspired by a case that emerged in France a, a couple of years ago. Um, the French police seized a painting that belonged to 
the Prince of Liechtenstein, his his Serene Royal Highness. Did you know that that that's how that was his full title, his Serene Royal Highness? Um, well, he wasn't so serene when the French police seized his his Lucas Cronach the Elder, um, and he was wasn't so serene when when the the, the Louvre informed him that this thing was a forgery. Um, and 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 um, and there, there were other forgeries that were connected to the same source, including a painting that fooled by by Franz Hals that or allegedly by Franz Hals, I should say, that fooled the very best eyes in the business at the Louvre in in the Netherlands. Um, and I was just fascinated by this. Why? Okay, most forgers focus on twentieth century paintings. For the, for the simple reason that they're much easier to forge. With all due respect to the uh, um, uh, abex painters, abstract expressionists, who I'm a, I revere, you know, it's easier to forge a Pollock and, and a Rothko than it is a Titian or a Rembrandt. Um, and but the guy behind these these paintings that emerged in France, he could stand at a canvas and and imitate the greatest old master painters who ever picked up a paintbrush. And, but more importantly, he knew how to construct his paintings in a way that they, that, that they could fool the best, best eyes in the business. They, the paintings fooled the Louvre. Um, there, you know, there's a lot going on, on underneath the surface of a painting, layers and layers of paint, all kinds of things that you'll learn about when you read this book. And this guy was that good. And that's the inspiration for this book. So, so John, John and I live on Long Island, and there was a forger in the town of Roslyn. They did a whole documentary on the guy. I don't know if you knew this, John, but the FBI uncovered him, and they were showing the documentary, again, to your point about the layers. So you're trying, you know, these things are 500 years old, so you have a layer of this, and then there's some shellac, and maybe there was some varnish put on it by somebody that shouldn't have put it on, and they have to de delayer it. And so yeah. literally, they're reconstructing... 500 years, the original painting, then potentially damage that was done to the painting and then refurbishing of the painting. I mean, it, it is literally astounding what people are willing to do to create the forgery. Um, why write about that now? Because you do things in your books that are precursors. Do you think more forgeries are coming out? Do you think more fraud is going to be exposed? Why write about that now, Daniel? And I I see the smirk on your face, so there is a reason why. Um, look, there have been in the last 20, 25 years, several major, major forgery scandals that have just rocked the art world. Um, and of course we had the, the, the one in New York City that took down the most storied art gallery in New York City. And by the way, that that scandal had roots on Long Island as well. Um, the front woman for the forgery network was a woman named Lafira Rosales. She walked, goes to the Nodler Gallery on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. She's got a, a, a painting wrapped in cardboard. She says it's a Rothko and, and the gallery sold it. And if you want to watch a documentary on that, on, on Net, uh, I believe it's Netflix, Made You Look. It's an excellent documentary. Um, um, and so I've always been drawn to forgery and forgery scandals. Um, but yeah, I do anticipate, um, the, look, the, the forgery scandals that we know of, they're the tip of the iceberg and, and those forgeries, 
forgers alone, the, the, the big ones in the last 20 years, are responsible for thousands of paintings being introduced to the, to, to the, the, the um, paintings in circulation. Um, Willie Sutton had a great, a great, it might be apocryphal, but he was asked once, uh, why do you rob banks? And he says, that's where the money is. Um, why, why do people engage in art fraud and, and forgery? Because that's where the money is. Um, art, art is, is a huge business. Um, it's, it's probably only going to get, maybe you can speak to this, um, as investments are market is, is undergoing some, some turbulence right now to, to say the least, um, art money will necessarily flock to, towards art. And a lot of people who are investing in art probably don't realize it, but they're buying forged paintings. Um, and they're, they're, the, the problem is, is, is more widespread than the art world likes to admit. A, a Swiss art expert you know, created a firestorm a few years ago when he suggested that half of the paintings in circulation are fakes and forgeries. But interestingly enough, it's the exact same figure that, that the legendary Thomas Hoving of the, the, uh, the Met director, the late Thomas Hoving, he picked the same number that half of the paintings circulating in the art world are outright fakes or they are, are misattributed paintings, deliberately misattributed paintings, or the paintings that have been doctored in some way to make them more valuable. Um, I don't think it's quite that bad, but even if it were 25% or even 10%, that, that's a lot of that's a lot of fakes out there. But the values hold. You know, it's interesting. If if they're frauds and you've got 50% of them are frauds, it's not if that if that were the case, let's say in the equity market, securities, things like that, the values would not hold. Why do you think that is? Why do you think the art market is so reasonably liquid and so reasonably stable with a bias upward? Um, well, it does have some, we've had some ups and downs, but if you look at the trend line, it is like this. It, it, an art changed uh, in the 80s. Um, and, it, and, you know, we saw that phenomenon there of big banks buying big pieces of art and big wealthy Japanese billionaires buying Van Goghs and locking them in bank vaults. Um, and and that, is, that process is just only accelerated. Um, to where now art is, it's, it's something that I talk about in the book, but it has become another, just another asset class. Um, and there are vehicles, instruments, um, not quite like mine, but you can just invest, plunk down money and invest in art as an asset. Um, now it, uh, art performs well. Um, it, it does, I think by most measures outperform um stocks and other asset classes over time um and more people are we have now have you know asian uh, chinese russian billionaires who have entered um uh, the art world in big big ways um art confers nothing like a, a, you know being an art collector to confer instant status you you buy your membership to the club by by buying, buying a, a flashy collection. Um, and so there's just a, there's a, seems to be a never ending um, hunger for it. So, so I'll, I'll share this with you without giving up the name of a very famous hedge fund manager, well-known guy in the art world. I say to him, how do you get in the art world? He says, well, hey, you know, are you talking about Ken Griffin? No, not Ken, different, a different guy. Um, 
And he says to me, uh, well, I decided to buy a painting. And I realized once I bought the painting, I was now in a club of people that owned paintings from that artist. Yeah. And then I bought another painting and all of a sudden my network expanded. And then before you know it, the people in the art world were giving me money for my hedge fund. So the art, which I thought I was buying for collectability and potential asset growth, grew my business. And so you 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 never know when you're wading into something what the positive and or negative externalities are. But I want to ask you something about Gabriel Alon. You, you've been writing about him for two decades. How is this mission different from the other missions that Gabriel's been on over the last two decades? Well, this one... I guess I would I would hesitate to, to call it um, a mission. It is something that starts, he, he's sort of organically pulled into something because he does a, a favor for an old friend. And the most um, um, obvious difference about this one is that is that this book, unlike some other books that I've done, it starts in the art world and, and it stays in the art world. Um, you know, I, I took a very conscious decision when I started working on this book that I did not want Gabriel, the minute he retired, to get drawn straight back into his old life. I wanted a bit of a firewall. Um, and so this book um, is is about the art world and the business of art um, and, and what I call the dirty side of the art world. Um, you're going to he he has pick, picked up some interesting friendships along the way. So you're going to meet. You're going to meet forgers and thieves and criminal assassins uh, and just a real and dealers, art dealers, um, a unique cast of characters um, as Gabriel uh, tries to untangle and, and find this very, very elusive art forger. And I'm going to turn it over to John Dorsey for some questions. I know he loves sprinkling himself in here. Go ahead, John. <laughs> well, w one of the salt talks that we did uh, was about a book that you wrote that was based in the Gulf, um, the Arabian Gulf or the Persian Gulf, whichever whichever side of that fence you're on. But uh, there was there's a well-known case of a forgery, a $450 million sale of what turned out to be a fake Da Vinci, although a lot well, of... Okay. Uh, a lot of pains have been taken. Yeah, yeah. A lot of pains have been taken to make sure no one actually says that it's fake. Um, but how much of that was an inspiration? I know that you are very interested in that part of the world. Uh, but but how much of that saga contributed? I, to I mean, I don't know if Dan Daniel feels comfortable with it. Why don't we ask him his opinion? Do you think that the Da Vinci that was sold at Christie's for four hundred and fifty million dollars was a? I don't. I don't want to get. I don't want to get. Uh, Prince Chop Chop, as I refer to him, uh, <laughs> Prince Chop Chop angry at me about his painting. But I put in print in The New Girl because, because the painting in question, Salvatore Mundi, is hanging in, in a, a fictitious chateau owned by my version of the prince in The New Girl. And, and Gabriel looks at it. And, and um, Gabriel's one of those guys, there are people like him that gets the he gets the shutters when he's looking at something that's not right. Um, and so I can't, I put words in his mouth that I would, I would say out loud that it is possible that a small portion of that painting, what is a Leonardo or was a Leonardo a long time ago, um, that it is possible that Leonardo's hand um, touched that, that painting. Possible is what I would say. Um, 
if you look at, uh, you can find online, and 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 I know people who have seen it, and it's as you described earlier, it's been as we say taken down. So all of the previous restorations and everything had been removed, and it was taken down to what it really looks like. Okay, it's a wreck. It is a wreck, and and um, I would. Say of that painting that it falls into the category of a, of a term we use in the in the business as being over restored, and that that is that w- woman who did it. She is an extraordinary, extraordinary art restorer. She is probably the best art restorer in the world, um, and and that much of that is just her work. Um, but a lot she of believes it, she believes Leonardo touched that. Painting. Yeah, yeah. She she um, she. Uh, Saw something in in the in the way that the mouth was rendered when she took it down, and she very much is committed to the fact that it's a Leonardo. Um, and, but what much of what we see when we look at it, and what the what the world saw when that when was it Sotheby's uh, took it on tour before the sale? Uh, that's her work. Um, um, so it, it has been very 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 heavily restored. Um, so I, I have mixed feelings about the painting. I actually got to see it um, before it became came this giant thing i was i was i was able to see it um it was in a deep underground in a museum locked in a in a safe um very very secure um and the doors opened and the in the in this special container and the lights went on and it's a very arresting image it just jumps you just takes your breath away when you see it um because it does have qualities of a leonardo no no question about it um, and she did a magnificent job on on the painting, but I I I I I have I have questions as to whether it's really Leonardo. How much is attributed to marketing to the price of these paintings? Because they did such a brilliant job marketing that Daniel. I mean, they had, yeah, they good they had Leonardo DiCaprio visage as he was looking at the quote unquote Leonardo. Da Vinci, the male version of the Mona Lisa, and they did all of these uh, interesting. They, they did an extraordinary, extraordinary marketing job with with that painting, and I think I guess that um, all all painting, all all value in art comes from 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 clever marketing in one way or another, and 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 um, artists rise and fall in, in terms of their value. Um, um, you know, would 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 Jackson Pollock have had the same trajectory if his work hadn't been seen by the right people at the right time? You know, it's very um, fickle, fickle business um, where value comes from. Um, okay, Basquiat, we um, he, he's just having a huge resurgence and a huge growth in his value. You know, why now? Um, um, Famous, fleeting, famous, interesting. Um, his story is resonating right now, and his art is ex- soaring in value at the moment. Yeah, this is fascinating. The the Mona Lisa itself, uh, not super famous. It's then stolen and it's not then super covered. Famous. Right, it didn't start out super famous, did it? Then it no, 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 it did not. It was Leonardo's yeah. reputation was at an ebb. Um, right. It was not a well known. Um, um work um with you know outside the, the art world um a 
the, the man who built the, the container for it inside the Louvre actually stole it. Um, it sat in his, in his apartment in Paris in his bedroom for a couple of years. The story is told in the novel. Um, he, he carts it to Italy and tries to sell it um, in Florence and gets arrested spends a year or so in jail for, for stealing the, the world's most famous painting. But it really, it, 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 um, it, it still didn't it, um, pick up its current fame until, um, gosh, I believe it's really when, when, um, Jackie Kennedy. the Kennedys, when the Kennedys went to, 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 um, uh, uh, uh Paris, uh, on that famous trip and, and saw it. And that's when it just, boom. Um, well, she, she asked, President de Gaulle, if she could take the painting with her to the National Gallery, and he, of course, was in love with her, and he said she could do anything she wants, a typical Frenchman. And so the, the painting was shipped to uh, the National Gallery, and the lines were out the door, and it was a media sensation in the United States, which, of course, traveled around the world. So, so the marketing, combined with the artistic quality of the master, sends the things into the stratosphere. Is that a fair comment? Sure. It's it's rare as the case where, you know, a contemporary artist um, paints something and just have it take the art world by storm. I mean, it's a a process that that, um, you have to have have the right gallery. Uh, He has to do the, your gallerist has to do the right things, to have the right show and the right people at the show. Um, it's very, very, very fickle. I mean, and then when you talk about old master paintings, which is what this book deals with. I mean, Caravaggio was lost to time, lost, gone, forgotten until the 1950s when an art restorer, excuse me, art historian rounded up his pictures and, and showed them to the world. And now Caravaggio, um, one of my favorite artists has the the, the reputation that, that he deserves because it, because an art historian in the 1950s took the time to track down all these works, organize a show of them, reintroduce Caravaggio to the world, um, and and now if you could if you could buy one, it would it would cost you quite a bit of money. John. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that struck me uh, was, you know, Gabrielle, as you said, you try to create this wall between his retirement, you know, exiting uh, with his ties with Israeli intelligence and, and settling in Venice and getting involved in the art world in search of peace. Is, is Gabrielle ever going to be able to, to find peace or is he going to continue to work in the art world or, or what's the trajectory for, for Gabriel? Uh, going the, forward? Plan, the plan is for Gabriel to, um, to, to, he will stay out of, He's done as a as a as a workaday spy. Um, he will live in Venice um, and and get into trouble frequently. Is the way I would describe it. I'm already working on the next book, um, so he will have a he, he will have a way of stumbling into into good trouble, as we say. How much uh, when you when you're writing this book, are you already in your mind plotting one, two, three books ahead about what the trajectory looks like for him, or do you like to? get a book under your belt, sort of digest it, hear reaction from fans and then plot the course. Um, I, you know, sort of had a, a, an arc in mind of, of where this would be going back several books to where I wanted the, uh, the series to end up where, where I wanted him to run his final lap as it were. Um, and, and I've, I've, I've executed that. Um, it's interesting, you know, 
he didn't he didn't turn out quite the way I, I thought he was going to turn out. Um, when I when I first introduced him, he did a, a counterterrorism job in his first book, uh, his first outing. But then he did did some historical things um, in in books uh, two, three, and four. And I had him on that line where he's going to do art and historical mysteries and things like that. And I allowed him to get drawn into the um, global war on terrorism, for, for lack of a better word. Um, you know, other writers were writing about, about Al-Qaeda and things like that. I didn't write my first Al-Qaeda book, and believe it or not, until 2006. I was just reluctant to deal with the material. Um, I didn't find it entertaining, to be honest with you. Um, and I wrote a book um, called The Messenger, and it was a good book, and it was a big book. Um, and, and I let him get drawn in um, uh, to, to uh, the, the global war on terror, and, the, and then he, he tangled with the Russians famously, of course. Um, so now I'm sort of, I have, I have put him to where I wanted him to be in the, in the, in it, in the beginning um, is it for, for, the, for the end stages of the, of the series. And that is um, to, to deal with um, murder investigations, um, historical matters, um, cases that emerge from the art world. So how much of that, you know, as we talk about frequently, we've talked about on past episodes, so much of your storylines are driven by real world events. Um, <laughs> so as you stay more in the art world and, and his adventures evolve, uh, how much are you going to continue to look at real world events and what type of real world events today are you most interested in weaving into your stories? I, I think that it is inevitable that he will get drawn um, into um, geopolitical we'll call it for an umbrella term. Um, and, and, and I mean, I, the notion that I would, I would, I would stop writing about it or stop thinking about it. I mean, that, that's just not going to happen. Um, it's just, the world is too interesting and too dangerous right now uh, to, to turn my back on. Um, I, I, I have to be honest with you. I sort of, this year, I kind of just wanted to, I just didn't, for a number of reasons I, I chose to write, this as a straight art book um, with with a financial overlay. Uh, I needed a, a break from it, but we are about to enter some 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 turbulent times. I mean, do you not agree, Anthony? That that um, with well, the, I, I, no, I, I do agree, and I, I obviously want to talk about the book, hold up the book, promote the book, but I also no, we, we, we've done that. We've done that. <laughs> I want to I want to get I want to get your political opinion on what is going on. You've watched, I'm sure, with some level of the same horror that I've watched the January 6th testimony. We both know these people are speaking truthfully. So, I mean, we're going to have disinformation related to that. But when you're sitting here in this society now where educated people have become apathetic, this is my observation, sir, and I want you to challenge me on it. But mm. I look at our society now and I say educated people have become apathetic at a time where we need political activism and and the activism needs to be up the middle this time as opposed to on one of the two sides right. and we need to engage what i would call the the big part of the bell curve which are the moderates that are in the middle that have been sworn off politics due to the approach that our politicians are taking and the cynicism that's in the system but i'm telling you we're in danger without activating those people what's your reaction to that 
Um, I, I, I agree. Um, there's a, I, apathy, you know, we, for, we, we always lamented our, our, uh, paltry, uh, voter, uh, voter participation numbers that we, we had for years and years and years, uh, voter turnout, um, that was very low in, in, in the United States. And I think that, in a in a strange way that that um, reflected sort of a general contentment and health of our of our political system. No one was too mad about any anything. Yes, there were activists on on on, on each side, as you, as you say. But there was in the in the middle, people were generally uh, content to let either party have it. You know, a lot of people just didn't couldn't be bothered to vote. Their lives were okay. They were um disengaged um we i would say that right now we have a we have a lot of negative engagement i mean people are really fired up right now um yes they are there is some apathy in terms of um i think we're sort of whistling past the graveyard about what's coming um i mean my own fears were realized when 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 um I mean, Trump is going to run again by all appearances. Um, so there's 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 milestone number one. So th things are going to get more destabilized, I'm afraid, before they get better. Um, I what I what I I fear is is that I I'm trying to protect some sources here, but I'm wor I'm worried about the, the about the election that's coming our way, the first one. That I hope we get through the 2022 election, um, but I'm very, very worried about the next election in terms of of can we get a president inaugurated? <laughs> can we get through it without violence? Can we get a, a a a a government that has you know the power to maintain the full faith and credit of our currency and our 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 debt? Um, I hope so, um, but I'm 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 I'm, Michael Beschloss was on MSNBC the other night and says, I, I hope we're going to have a democracy in two years, but I'm not sure. And I guess that's where I am. So you're a historian, you know, you're a, a Renaissance man. Amateur. What, yeah, but, but you are, though. I mean, let's let's be, you know, Barbara F. Walter uh, wrote a book, How Civil Wars Start. I read her book. Um, mm -hmm. uh, we were halfway through her list. And so um, what I mean, I maybe I'm wrong on this. I feel like there's not enough people paying attention to it. And I think that the people that want to exploit it, you know, they've decided that the rules shouldn't be what they are anymore because they may not be able to stay in power if the rules are what they are. So let's change the rules. That's what they've decided. So um, why aren't more people up in arms about that? I did that, that. That's the thing I don't understand. Well, an Eisenhower wouldn't stand for that. A, you know, even Wendell Wilkie, okay, who you and I are old enough to remember the name Wendell Wilkie. Uh, it was a very contentious election. We're gonna. I'm talk to you now, John Dorsey, young John Dorsey. But Wendell Wilkie, the the election of 1940 was very controversial because Roosevelt was moving against the Washingtonian tradition of running for a third term. 
and Wilkie was in there and he lost to Roosevelt and there wasn't any furor or anything like that. He went to go see him and he said, how can I help you, President Roosevelt? He said, well, you got to help me put down these America first characters, right? The first America first characters, Charles Lindbergh and Huey Long and Father Coughlin. And so he worked to do that. That should have been Kevin McCarthy, Daniel, because that should have been a leading Republican should have stood with Joe Biden said, hey, we got to, this is nonsense. This is not what we represent. So why didn't that happen? You you circle in traffic in Washington still. I, 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 that happens. I, 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 did you read, uh, read um, the piece in the Atlantic, uh, Mark Levovich's piece in the Atlantic that, that appeared this morning? It's devastating portrayal of, of McCarthy and Lindsay. Why did you do what you did? What... Um, what happened? Um, and I, I guess it's the base of the party. I mean, the, the party is is strapped to this base. Um, um, they 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 cannot tack to the middle where the votes are because the base will rebel. So they're 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 stuck with with the base that they have. They can't um, increase. They can't grow the party. So they have to. To resort to to anti-democratic means, they're in a doom loop. Um, and just to, to remind our our audience, they have lost the popular vote in seven out of the last eight elections. Yeah, that's true. Isn't Going that, back to nineteen eighty eight, they've only won one presidential popular vote. That's right, and it was um, in two thousand and four in that in very superheated. Um, Post 9-11, post-Iraq um, environment, uh, patriotism is in the air. It was a, t- it was a tense election. Um, and interestingly enough, if, if 100,000 votes had gone the other way in Ohio, yeah. um, Kerry could have won a, the popular, lost the popular vote and won the Electoral College. So <laughs> it cuts both ways it, it back then. The, the electorate has changed dramatically since then. Um, and so, I mean, I always wondered, you know, what if Trump had actually won the electoral college somehow, but lost the, the popular vote by 7 million plus votes? I mean, would the country have been governable under those circumstances to have that anti-democratic an, an outcome? Um, but, but look, the, the base is what, what it is. Um, and they feel that they cannot break bar- uh, part company with Trump and my Republican sources, you know, this world uh, better than I do, especially the money aspect, but the money is the critical part of the equation. It's not just Trump's popularity. It's just that, that, that big donors, um, uh, close their wallets, corporations close their wallets for a time. They needed that small dollar uh, Trump donor to stay engaged to help them to get the house back and 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 the, 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 I'm told over and over again it's money money money. Before we let you go, I want you to envision for me because you're such a great writer. I want you to envision for me a metaphorical American political Gabriel Alon. Mm. Okay. So this metaphorical character, male or female, uh, the characteristics of this character. Uh, that would unify the country, that would help transform and break the fever 
of tribalism and identity politics and the threat to the democracy. What would that character, male or female, have in terms of their personality? What would that character have in terms of their wisdom and to be able to galvanize a nation? Um, I, I think um, that the that person should probably come from the Republican Party. That's it. And, and um, he should, he or she should be like, you know, you never heard Ronald Reagan. And he was, he knew how a wedge issue and how to wield a wedge issue as, as well as everybody. But he didn't raise his voice. He, uh, when he, when he criticized the other side, he always did it with a smile. Um, he had some incredible skills in, in that regard. Um, but we have to, what, what, what frightens me most about, and you're talking about the, the Walter book. I mean, right now the Republican Party is just focused elites, elites, coastal elites, pedophiles, using language, this dehumanizing language. I mean, that, that Rick Scott would stand up at a podium and refer to Democrats and liberals as the enemy within. Okay, that's not how we're going to get the country back together again. Um, and I, I say that it comes from the, that I would hope it would come from the Republican Party because it would represent a, a healing. Uh, uh, if we could break the, this fever, this populist anger, it has taken hold of the party, um, but I'm not holding my breath uh, because I think they they represent, um, as you as you alluded to, they 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 can't win democratically right now with, with the with the base that they have. They are they they expect to make inroads in Hispan in the Hispanic community, and I expect they will. Uh, but right now, they they can't win. They can't win it straight up, and they've got to win bit narrow. Electoral college victories, and that's the way they're going to. Uh, 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 we're a little over time, but I want to test one more thing on you, if you don't mind, Daniel. Um, it's the documents themselves, the Constitution. Um, uh, it's a 233 year old document. Um, the document was a, supposed to be a living document. We stopped amending it in 1993, so we don't have the amendments. But this this document is under stress right now. Yeah. And it was designed, if you read the document and you read the Federalist Papers and you read the language in the Constitutional Convention, it was designed to not only promote a democracy and eradicate the potential of tyranny and autocracy, but it was also designed to protect minorities. And I don't mean black or brown people. I mean the minority vote. That's why Rhode Island got two senators and a more populous state like New York got two senators. The subversion of those ideas where the Republican party through operation red map and flooding the zone of state legislatures to rebuild these districts and to put more Republicans in seats and to cut it up in a way where they could hold the power despite being in the minority. We now have what, the, what, what our founders were afraid of was the tyranny of the majority. Right. But what we now have, sir, is through social engineering and 30 years of deployment we have the tyranny of the minority. So a Supreme Court could be six conservatives, a Christo nationalist Supreme Court, and they could rule against what 80% of the people want. And so what's your reaction to that? Uh, did I miss something there? Do I have it right or wrong? And then what's your reaction to that? How would we fix it? 
how would we fix it? I mean, you're talking about going back to the foundational document of the country. Well, um, well, my, my, point, my point would be that we would need amendments to fix it, right? We, we, amend, you know, an amendment to end gerrymandering. If you ask me, I, I would like a, 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 I mean, I, I was, I had to drive up to your way to be on the Today Show yesterday. I was, I was listening to BBC Radio Four all day um, on the way home. Just showing a prime minister the door, get out, you're done. Um, we don't have that ability here because we have the system that, that, that they gave us. Um, it was a work of genius, but they were also very nervous about true, true, true democracy. They put all kinds of little checks and balances throughout the system, and they created this profoundly anti-democratic chamber. I mean, um, two two automatic rep uh, representatives for every state. Um, so they awarded representation of land over people in the way that the country turned out to be. No, no question. No, no, listen. North and South Dakota have the North same. North and South Dakota and Wyoming. Right. They have the same representation of New York and Texas and California. I mean, so in, in, that, in that very important body. So it's counter, uh, it's anti-democratic. Um, and the Republicans, um, you used the term, the Operation Red Map. They, they saw the vulnerabilities in the, in the system. Um, Donald Trump lost the popular vote. He, he, as I would say, he finished second in the in the 2016 election. He was awarded the presidency through the Electoral College system. He appointed three Supreme Court justices. Um, George Bush was, I think, he appointed two. Correct. Two. Um, two over. And he, he lost the popular vote in this in the first. He came to power after losing the the popular vote, finishing second. Uh, but he was able to. So we have five of the six of those have been appointed by presidents who lost the popular vote. Interesting. Um, and uh, I think Bush's appointments came in the second term, but but um, you know his initial his initial win. So we have some anti-democratic, um, counter-majoritarian um, aspects to it that the Republicans have 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 ceased on. Um, and it, it's not, it, it was never meant to be a representative. If we have a representative democracy, a representative republic, it is not a democracy, a straight, pure democracy. If we wanted that, we should have a parliamentary system. Well, you, you've been super generous with your time. Um, I could sit here all day doing this. You know, we're both optimists. John and I are also optimists. Um, I'm too short. I tell my friends, Daniel, but I'm too short to see the glass, anything other than half full. It always looks full to me. But, but uh, what I enjoy about my summer are so many things, but nothing more than a delicious, intriguing, suspenseful novel from Daniel Silva. And this is The Portrait of an Unknown Woman. It's available very shortly in all bookstores. And July 19th. My parents uh, watch all our salt talks, obviously, and become avid. Uh, Gabrielle Alon and Daniel Silva fans. So they'll be they'll be the first to pick it up on July 19th. And I want to say you this. Order, you can order it now. Yeah, okay. you can and order I, it now. I want to say this. There are many former Goldman Sachs partners that were once my bosses that are super jealous, Daniel, that I'm in the acknowledgement section, okay? And I just want to thank you for that, okay? Because I send the book out to them and they're just very upset that you and I are close. So too bad on them. Well, yeah, we have to I'm figure teasing, out. Of course, these are friends of mine. They're always teasing me about it. 
We'll get you. We'll get you in the next one. Um, even if you're not helping me commit a crime in the next one. <laughs> well, I enjoy the fact that I'm committing crimes in these books, but not in real life. That's Absolutely. the key. Absolutely. Someone, someone has to be straight in this world, Anthony. Amen. Every, you know, I'm just, I, I'm, I am disheartened every day by, by people who are, acting in ways that are um, harmful to the country and harmful to our, our society. And, but um, it's good to know that there's at least one straight guy out there. Well, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to fix it. I do believe that, sir. I do believe that we're going to come up with a way to fix this. I haven't, I haven't figured out exactly how yet, but I do believe that we are because there's just some gift that this country has of self-correction. I do believe that the country will, will, will self-correct in a surprising way, once again, I do. I, I look at my children who are now heading for their 30s and they don't want the system to be what it is. And I'm hoping there'll be another generational sea change here. Well, um, I would like to get through this this populist rage as quickly as possible. Um, um, I, I, I think in a couple of books ago, I referred to that that. Um, Populism is what they they um, sort of euphemistically refer to this. There, there there are some dangerous elements to populism and the kind of populism that, that is sweeping this country right now. These 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 are dangerous, violent people um, who are are threatening these politicians. No question. Um, and and um, Kinzinger scared the daylights out of me when he when he said the other day that that there mark my words there will be violence. Um, I hope he's wrong. Yeah, well, me too. All right. Well, you enjoy the rest of the summer. We're going to enjoy our summer. I'm halfway through this, uh, but John got it right. I only like reading it by the pool or the beach. I find that to be a delectable way to do it. So thank you, Dan. This is a novel that's built. um, It's a twist novel. There are some killer, killer, killer plot twists coming your way. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you again. And give our regards to Jamie, please. All right. Okay. And hopefully we'll see you soon, sir. And good luck on the tour. And stay, stay masked. Trust I, me. I, I don't fool around. Don't this fool. is a really tough one. This variant is tougher than people are reporting. Well, thank you again, Daniel. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to today's Salt Talk with Daniel Silva the third in our own little series of thriller uh, Salt Talks that we've done uh, talking about Gabriel Alon and his adventures. Reminder, you can watch all of those and all of our Salt Talks on demand on our website at salt.org backslash talks or on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. We're also on social media. Twitter is where we're most active, at Salt Conference, but we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook as well. On behalf of Anthony and the entire Salt team, thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you soon.